is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream with Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me as always is Megan Bojarski. We are your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This episode, we are taking a break from our usual chronological order coverage uh, and giving a bonus episode to finish out our second season. Uh, we're actually doing two bonus episodes, mostly focusing on Disney shorts, which are no longer going to be a thing that really continues forward in the same way. Uh, and so in this episode, we thought it would be best to focus on Big Cheese himself, Mickey Mouse, as we've basically are not going to talk about Mickey again in our main episodes because he shows up in Fantasia, he shows up in Fun and Fancy Free. We will briefly mention him again in Fantasia 2000 because Sorcerer's Apprentice also is a part of that. And we will talk about him when we talk about Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But that's a good 40 years away from uh, where we are chronologically. And there's so much of Mickey's heyday that I think has already happened up to this point that, that we're at in this project. Uh, and so we decided it would be a good use of, of this between season break to talk about Mickey. One of the quotes that comes up all the time when you're looking into Disney is Walt's quote, which apparently he said many, many times. I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a mouse. And yet, as Ryan said, for this podcast, we're almost never talking about Mickey Mouse. So it's kind of a um, an odd dynamic between kind of what Disney actually was and what we think of it as. As always, we have our classic sources in the show notes, but for this episode in particular, we recommend that you watch the Disney Plus documentary, Mickey, the Story of a Mouse, which came out in 2022, and read the book, Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, The Ultimate History by J.B. Kaufman and David Gerstein that came out in 2018. There are, I'm sure, a million other sources that have some really great information, but those are two that really kind of cover the history that we want to kind of work our way through today. Yeah. and. Both of those sources go far beyond what we're going to be talking about, which is mostly going to be focused on Mickey as a cartoon on the on on a screen of some kind, where that book and the documentary go through, you know, M Mickey Mouse merchandise. Obviously, watches is probably the first thing that comes to mind. Waffles may be a, qu a close second for some. But, you know, the merchandising, the theme parks, the iconography of Mickey is all really well served by those two sources, but they're a little bit beyond what we're going to be uh, talking about today. 
going a full full flashback all the way back to the beginning as we talked about in our very first episode of this podcast mickey was preceded by oswald the lucky rabbit uh, who was created by walt disney and up iWorks for universal back in 1927 the character was eventually stolen out from under them in 1928 uh, universal also pilfered most of the artists working for disney at the time and basically reframed Walt being like, I need to own the things that I make so that this will never happen again. One of Walt's many, <laughs> the maybe not the first, but one of Walt's many like hard lines in the sand. This is how it's going to be from now on. Uh, he likes to own his own creation. He hates communists. These are two things we know for sure about Walt Disney. Later on in 1928, Mickey first makes his actual first debut in a test screening of the short called Plain Crazy. Uh, it failed to impress the audience. Walt could not find a distributor. They made a second Mickey short called The Gallop and Gaucho, which was also not released for lack of a distributor. But then comes Steamboat Willie, which I think we briefly, briefly talked about in that episode as well, which is the first cartoon with synchronized sound. Number one, it's just so iconic because people may think that they haven't seen this and then you hear Mickey whistling at the beginning of it and everyone knows that because Disney has integrated it so much, which will lead to the end of this podcast being very interesting. But this was such an interesting short because there are so many things that are kind of intrinsic to Mickey Mouse that are already there by the first official one and, you know, the third technical one but it's also you know i don't know that we can ever truly understand how revolutionary sound was in film but i just knowing that this was one of the first sound cartoons ever watching it man would that have been hard and and walt and every other you know historian and early member of the company is very vocal about how difficult it was, but it is just... Essentially, the short just goes by Mickey is working on a boat that is, as far as we can tell, captained by Pete, who is already his enemy from the get-go. And basically, he's just trying to have a fun life and do his job and get the girl of his dreams, which is already Minnie. So there's all of those really early integral ideas Mickey certainly looks a little bit different than we're used to, but he's absolutely identifiable. And then, of course, my great thing is that I already have questions about why some animals are animals and some animals are people. Because, essentially, I believe a cow eats Mickey's music, and so they have to make their own music, which, again, is just amazingly impressive with the sound technology. But so Mickey just starts, like, playing animals, including, like, playing the babies sucking on, like, a mother pig's teats, for lack of a better word. And it just seems cruel to me. Like, we're supposed to root for this mouse, but he's also, like, kind of brutally harming a series of other animals that just don't count as people. But this is just my pedantic side that will never fully accept why some animals are animals and some animals are humans in the world of Mickey Mouse. So that's just, that's my little rant that we have to get out of the way in the beginning here. Yeah, going back to this short, it is always impressive knowing everything that's going to come after it, of course. 
it is very interesting watching it, trying to imagine not having synchronized sound. Because, like, we say silent movies, but when you would go to see a movie in a theater, there would be somebody playing a piano or something, doing their best to, to go along with the action that was happening on screen. But this is just a whole a whole new level. It, it, it feels like it gave Mickey sort of a leg up on a lot of other cartoon characters in terms of, like, just bursting onto the scene, kind of being fully formed as this sort of, like... What I like about Mickey is he's, like, a prankster, kind of. Like, he he's... He's willing to sort of, like, mess with people, but he is also an underdog. Like, there's something really interesting about that. Like, he's not he's not trolling people. You know, he might be, like, playing with them a little bit. Occasionally, he does, like, troll Donald, because how could you not? But Or, or Pete, for that matter. But he's mostly good-natured, I feel like, the whole way through. And pulled this quote from... The documentary about Mickey during the, the Great Depression, I think so much of that ends up being wrapped up in Mickey's character. That, you know, the quote being, Mickey becomes the icon of how to survive the Great Depression. The American dream has suffered, but Mickey is able to bring that back. He's able to return us to a, a sense of perseverance. We talked about in that first episode about the three little pigs and sort of the, the value of hard work and the same thing with Snow White. And I feel like Mickey is sort of the, you know, the first step on that road. To me, the spirit of Mickey that I got, especially from watching all of these shorts, is that Mickey is earnest. He wants to do his job and to care for the people that he loves. And yet he is utterly incompetent at doing anything the normal way. He's going to succeed, but he's going to do it in the weirdest way possible. And it it just works so well, both as a kind of vessel for cartoon humor and just as the idea that, like, the conventional methods aren't working. We are living in a period where they just, it doesn't work. And we see this throughout a lot of his early shorts. He has to get a cow onto the boat in Steamboat Willie, but the cow is too skinny. So he uses a bunch of hay to fatten up the cow to get it on. And in some of the later ones, he's unable to successfully put out a fire, but he can rescue people from them by absurd means. And it it just becomes this kind of symbol of those who have not been able to thrive in the conventional world. And that's such an intriguing message because it's not, you know, the practical pig saying, you know, I worked hard, so now I can, you know, play around a little bit. It is, if you are earnest, eventually you will find a way, even if it is very much not the way that anybody else would have done it. I think that's a that's a really great point and a really good nuance in that where it's Vicky is more about trying and trying and trying until you succeed where as you know practical pig and you know snow white is more about like well you put in the hard work and then you see the results from it mickey is very much like a bunch of stuff is going to get in your way but you have to keep going because that's the only way to get through it you know so mickey himself does not speak in steamboat willie his first words are hot dogs uh said in the carnival kid in a year later 1929 he is trying to sell those hot dogs. 
so this is our first time hearing Walt Disney as the voice of uh, both Mickey and Minnie, at least at the beginning. And he remained Mickey Mouse's voice through 1946 for all of the cartoons and shorts, including Fantasia. Uh, Jimmy McDonald took over the role in 1946, but Walt, again, did Mickey's voice from 1955 to 1959 for the Mickey Mouse Club show on ABC. And I think we talked about Walt sort of transitioning out of the voice uh, in our Fun and Fancy Free episode as well, because Walt had done some of those recordings prior to 1946, even though that movie had, uh, actually comes out later. Yeah, so I feel like, I mean, we can't underestimate how important Walt being Mickey was. Because, of course, there's the voice, but there's so many other levels to it. For instance, Walt, in the documentary said, the life and ventures of Mickey Mouse have been closely bound up with my own personal and professional life. He still speaks for me, and I still speak for him. And in many ways, he means that, you know, both literally and figuratively, to the extent that, according to Lillian Disney, once Walt died, she could not watch anything Mickey Mouse because he was so much of Walt. And I think that you know, we've talked multiple times about how various movies or plot lines might tie into Walt's life or kind of the company as a metaphor. But I think that going back to Mickey as someone who made it work, who did impressive things, but not in the way that he was supposed to. I mean, that is very much the story of Walt, who kept trying and kept failing. Like we said, even Mickey, who we think of as, you know, everything, took two, three times to get it right. But even when they got it right, for instance, with Steamboat Willie, they had to risk everything for it. And that's something that is very characteristic of both Walt and Mickey. As Walt explained, he had to borrow on his car. Roy and him both mortgaged their houses to cover the cost of the first recording of the synchronized sound which failed miserably. And that's got to be a soul-crushing moment where you've just put your entire financial life on the line and it didn't work. But they did it again, and it did. And now you can't think of Disney, you can't think of entertainment without thinking of Mickey Mouse and his iconic look and voice. And I think it's really interesting that we're talking about sort of Mickey's arc through this and it, it's really interesting tying the two together because we see Walt emerge sort of as his own persona only after he stops doing the voice of Mickey. And this is where we start to see the sort of like Uncle Walt kind of emerge. And I think that's, that's a really interesting thing I hadn't really thought about before or didn't really know before because I just didn't know the timeline of all this stuff the way that I do now. Having read some of the biographies, there's a lot of interesting talks about that transition period where the name Disney meant something, but it mostly meant the company until he became Uncle Walt. And I think that a lot of that required him to stop hiding behind Mickey and start actually putting himself on the screen and on the line. And that's a very scary thing to do. I don't know that he would have done it in today where... Anything you put out, social media will tear apart, whether it's good or not. But yeah, so so much of Mickey is Walt and Walt is Mickey. And yet I think in so many ways, they both ended up representing different things to some extent. 
And for the record, I think Walt would have hated Twitter, but I think he actually really would have liked TikTok. <laughs> would he have liked TikTok? Or would he be a Vine Forever kind of person who refused to... Well, you know, it depends on what point in his life, I guess, we catch him. If we catch him in the early days, he'd be the first person on TikTok. If we catch him in his later life, he would be the one still watching Vine compilations on YouTube 10 years later. <laughs> I, unless unless he was like, well, TikTok, you know, it's it's a Chinese app and therefore a communist and I can't have uh, any part of that. Yes. But I, I do think the innovation aspect would have tickled him. But I think everybody's opinion on Twitter would have just annoyed the hell out of him. You know, and of course, as Mickey goes on, we introduce more and more of uh, his sort of regular cast, shall we say. So Pete is also there from the beginning or actually before. Uh, he actually predates Mickey. He made his debut in Alice Solves the Puzzle in 1925 as part of one of the uh, Alice comedies, which I think is really interesting and so he had recurring roles in those things before Pete ever met Mickey. The Pluto appears in 1930 as Minnie's dog Rover but then uh, his first full appearance he shows up in The Moose Hunt in 1931. Then we get Goofy as Dippy Dog in his first appearance in Mickey's Review in 1932 and I think probably the most famous of Mickey's compatriots uh, Donald Duck shows up in The Wise Little Hen in 1934 and then quickly appears with Mickey for the first time also in the same year in uh, the orphans benefit. So pretty quickly we have sort of like what Disney now calls the, the fab five of Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, and Pluto. And they're sort of kind of always together. And then there's, there's more ancillary characters like Chip and Dale are sort of part of it. Daisy duck Horace Horsecollar and Clarabelle Cal as well are part of the, you know, and there, there's a few other characters beyond that, but th- those are sort of the main five, plus Pete as the sort of recurring antagonist. Also in 1930 was The Cactus Kid, which was the last film to be animated by Ub Iwerks, Mickey's co-creator. Has his last work at Disney for 10 years until he comes back in 1940, but then he's mostly working on the integration of live action and animation for Song of the South and other sort of more innovative technology and techniques for animation more than doing a lot of animation himself. At the fifth Academy Awards in 1932, Mickey received his first nomination, which was for uh, Mickey's Orphans. And then a fun trivia fact that you could write down for your next bar trivia night is that the earliest mention of Mickey Mouse as a write-in candidate dates back to the 1932 New York City mayoral election which I think is pretty interesting. And then one of the things I didn't realize from the book, because I, I put the, I had looked up some of the shorts that I thought would be interesting to talk about before reading the book, which may have been a mistake. But according to that History of Mickey Mouse book, 1933 is kind of considered the high watermark for Mickey as a solo character. And sort of after that point, it bec- the cartoons become more ensemble-based. And Mickey starts to cede popularity to Donald and other characters, as we've talked about in the Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros episodes. But there's still a lot of great Mickey to come for the next decade. The next short I want to touch on was Mickey's Service Station from 1935. I really like this. It's it's still a black and white one. Mickey hasn't gone full color yet, with an exception of a reel at the... 1932 Academy Awards, where Mickey was introducing the nominees 
in a cartoon that was in color for the first time, but that was only played at the awards banquet. And so most people wouldn't see Mickey in color until a few, a few years later, but Mickey's service station is in black and white. It's very simple where Mickey, Donald and Goofy are running a car service station. Pete brings his car in and says, I'll be back in an hour. This better, you know, there's a squeak in the car that needs to be fixed. Hijinks ensue. What's really fun is that Mickey, Donald, and Goofy almost get their own storylines. And by storylines, I mean sort of gag lines. Like we're following each of them as they struggle with various aspects of trying to repair the car. They finally find the squeak, which is a a cricket somewhere in one of the hoses that they get out. And then, of course, they have to put the whole car back together. There's oil everywhere. There's random pieces left over that Goofy is just sort of like throwing into the trunk. It's it's very fun and fast-paced and very slapstick and silly. Megan, I'm not sure if this is one you got a chance to to check out. So this one isn't, unfortunately, but I think that one of the things that worked so well in these early years is that they were able to just play with all of the characters. They hadn't fully kind of cemented their legendary status yet, and so they were able to play with them in some really interesting ways. They still had their archetypes, but they were flexible enough that there was a lot they could play with. And that's something that I think you definitely can feel kind of leeching out probably five years after this point. Yeah, so at this point, you know, just as Ub Iwerks is leaving Disney, we start to see the creation of what Disney would become so good at, which is merchandising. So the first officially licensed Disney book was simply called Mickey Mouse Book. And if you look it up, you can actually find some pictures of it. Picture of the cover actually is already showing Mickey partially in color with the red pants. And that goes back to 1930. So this goes all the way back. And it includes a brief story about essentially how Mickey Mouse met Walt, which is just such a great and confusing idea because we've just spent so much time talking about how Mickey was Walt in some ways. But as it's described in the Mickey Mouse documentary, we were given the quote, Falling from Mouse Fairyland, that is such an early Disney concept. Falling from Mouse Fairyland, crash landing on Walt's Walt's roof. Like Santa Claus, Mickey hops down the chimney, and who does he meet in the house? None other than Walt Disney himself. Which I think is just such a, a fun little story and a good way of kind of already bringing the characters beyond the screen. That Walt is not just the idea that was either created in secret or created on a train ride or whatever, you know, legend you choose to believe, but that he was, you know, a being already that just came down to meet Walt and essentially have his story be told. One of the sort of canonical legends that the Disney company likes to tell is that Walt met Mickey on the train uh, to California. So there's a song called Suitcase and a Dream, Uh, which is most associated with the Red Car Newsboys at Disney's California Adventure. And they have a whole song about, you know, traveling with a a suitcase and a dream. And one of the verses in that song is, Mr. Disney traveled west, just a few bucks to his name. Along the way, he met Mickey Mouse, and the world would never be the same. 
Like the, it, it sort of, you know, in this, in this very short and very repetitive and very, uh, earworm esque song, it, it, it re-explains to you that like, oh, Walt didn't create Mickey Mouse. He met Mickey Mouse and they basically became business partners. <laughs> That's such a great idea for me when it, you know, as somebody who's done creative writing and, you know, character creation. There are characters that I have built that I can tell you where they came from. And there are other characters that just exist. And they decided that I was going to have the good fortune of writing their story. And if I write it wrong, they yell at me. And so, although I I think it's, you know, kind of silly and it plays into all of these kind of corporate ideas that get a little bit more complicated with parasocial relationships in the modern day, it is so accurate to what it is to be an artist and a character creator where some ideas, especially the ones that hit home, you don't completely come up with. They are somehow already existing in the world. And that is just such a great concept and, and such a good way to, to sell a book and to sell the idea of Walt and Mickey Mouse. Yeah, and now I'll make sure to try to not have that song stuck in my head for the entire rest of this recording. I know it primarily from the, there's a Disneyland CD collection, the Legacy Collection, that has like three CDs worth of music associated with Disneyland, and that is one of the songs on there, and it is just instantly a song that you will be able to sing, like, at least the uh, chorus for after the first 30 seconds (laughs) of hearing it for the first time. I think I'm going to be grateful that I don't know that right now, but I will probably look it up as soon as we're done recording here. Oh, you you would like it because it's very much a theater kid style song. Awesome. Yeah, you, you'll enjoy it. There's a, you can also there's videos of the guys singing and dancing at the theme park on on YouTube if you look that up. Moving on a little bit ahead to the introduction of color, uh, we actually talked about the first Mickey Mouse color short the band concert in our first episode because it's still basically my favorite uh of all the mickey shorts and i really wanted to talk about it and i didn't we, we hadn't invented the concept of bonus episodes for the show yet so i shoehorned it in the first episode <laughs> also in 1935 walt would receive a special award from the league of nations for creating mickey because that's how much of an icon he became so the next short that we wanted to talk about is called Through the Mirror. Um, it's from 1936. Uh, it is on Disney+. Plus. This is one in sort of a series that puts Mickey in a classic story or, you know, a classic novel. In this case, Alice in Wonderland. So Mickey is falling asleep reading Lewis Carroll. It's not really retelling the story of Alice in Wonderland. It's more like Mickey has an Alice in Wonderland-inspired dream. And so there's a lot where the things in Mickey's house uh, sort of come to life, like the radio and the telephone. And then there's a big sort of whole dance sword fight sequence with Mickey and a bunch of playing cards, which I think is just incredibly well done. And things I didn't know while watching it is that Mickey's dancing is very much inspired by Fred Astaire. 
that sequence was an animated by uh, Dick Lundy, who was a dance specialist within the Disney animation sort of brain trust, if you will. And uh, Frank Churchill did the music, which was called Seagull Shore, which was composed two years earlier for a previous Mickey short, but they brought back. And the consensus of this book says that the, the music is actually much better here than it was in that original short. Joe Grant and Bill Cottrell modeled the Queen of Hearts in in the short after Greta Garbo. So there's a lot of classic Hollywood references throughout this. And the King of Hearts is inspired by Charles Lawton, who had recently starred in the private life of King Henry VIII. And so there's, again, just a lot of cultural references, very topical stuff. It's so interesting to me that, you know, we we watch stuff like this cold and like I didn't pick up on those caricatures whatsoever. And but if I watch them today and I'd be like, oh yeah, clearly that's supposed to be like John Cena and Melissa McCarthy or whatever. And I'd be like, oh, it's gonna be so dated when like these things just fly by, especially when you're a kid and you just have no clue that these are actually supposed to be like real people. You know, when I finally discovered like who Peter Laurie was after watching all those Looney Tunes cartoons where they like caricature him. I was like, oh, wait, that's, like, our real guy. Like, I just thought that was... I, I thought the cartoon was the, you know, the only version of a, a, a guy who kind of talks like this. Like, it, until you put all these things together later. So it's, it's kind of cool that it has all these connections. But I, I think the short is actually pretty incredible. The sword fight and the general sound design definitely feels, like, very classic. You know, the, like the dance choreography, the action, even just the card shuffling and like the sound design of the cards is perfect. Like they sound like playing cards moving around. Uh, it's th- this was one of my favorites that I uh, I don't think I had seen probably since I was a very small kid and like don't really don't really remember it. So kind of watching it fresh, it really it really blew me away. I don't think I necessarily had ever really seen any shorts before doing this. You know, when I was a kid, I watched a little bit of Looney Tunes and I watched Tom and Jerry, but I I never really had the Disney shorts. And anybody else who's like me, I highly recommend on Disney Plus, you go to the D100 collection because they have a great breakdown of like the early Disney shorts and orders and what different themes they have and, and all of that. But as we've done shorts, I've kind of been a little bit let down at times because I feel like some of the shorts just like do their thing and then they're done and they don't have a huge amount of impact. And this one, you know, I watched shorts from obviously the very beginning with Mickey to the present day to shorts that were made in literally the last couple of years. And 1936 through the mirror is absolutely my favorite short I think I've ever seen. I really like Alice in Wonderland, both the story and the Disney movie. I have so many notes that you will get to read and hear soon, Ryan, for Alice in Wonderland about how much the Disney company hated making that movie. And now that I've seen this, I might just tell people to watch this one instead. Not that the movie is bad, but I feel like this captures the weird energy the dream but not a dream but I don't even know of Wonderland in in just such a, a fantastic way. I love the idea that like some of the variations of Wonderland where Alice 
it's all a dream. She fell asleep while reading or while her sister was reading to her. The fact that Mickey falls asleep while reading it and then goes into it is great. The scenes are amazing. I didn't catch the, like, character drawings, but you definitely get, like, the dancing cheek-to-cheek Fred Astaire vibes with him and the Queen of Hearts, who is, of course, gorgeous in this one and very far from her eventual portrayal. I just think it's, it's so good. It captures all the best of Alice in Wonderland. It captures all the best of what the cartoons can do in all of these really great ways. I bet you weren't expecting me to like wax poetic about a short from the 30s, but I just, I really love all the different angles that they go to with it. And I also, just because I love Easter eggs, especially Easter eggs that aren't meant to be Easter eggs, anybody who is familiar with modern Disney and rewatches this will immediately go, oh, Beauty and the Beast stole from this because Mickey goes through the mirror and kind of trips over this living chair and footrest. And the footrest is a dog, and the footrest is the dog footrest from Beauty and the Beast that, you know, uh, is so nice to Maurice and occasionally shows up around Belle. And I just loved getting to see that where I... I mean, I'm pretty sure it's literally the exact same design. So, you know, call, call it stealing or call it, you know, grand inspiration. But I just, I feel like if I had to show somebody something and say, like, what is the height of Mickey Mouse or Disney shorts? I I don't know. This one probably is the top. It's at least in my top five. It's probably my top five. Like I said, the band concert is still probably my favorite for, I can't even explain why I like it more. I just do. There's some of the silly symphonies that I also really like, but this one is, it's just truly fantastic. And the version on Disney Plus looks really good. And to your point about the the footrest, I'm pretty sure the way that like Disney trains animators is like walking them through the history of animation. I, without knowing for a fact, I know that everybody who worked on Beauty and the Beast has seen this short, you know, 20 times. And so like it, it has to be a direct pull. And if you're going to pull, pull from the best. And this is certainly an example of that. As our viewers will hear kind of a lot in the upcoming 50s movies, especially with Cinderella, the more they leaned on live actors, the more the animators talked about how essentially they felt limited, that the characters had to do what humans could do. And I feel like this short is such a great counterexample of what animation can do that live action never could. Even CGI never could. All of the various absurdities of the cards, like, shuffling themselves and then throwing their suits at Mickey and then getting their suits and the cards blown off with the fan. I mean, we're going to talk about in Cinderella that some of the animators felt like the characters were nailed to the floor, and there is nothing and no one nailed to the floor in this short. And I think it just really shows off how great animation can be. That's absolutely what I love about animation. And I think what's so good about this short in particular, and what's really good about a lot of like what makes some of these shorts really good, that they are always surprising that like, they sort of zig where you expect them to zag just often enough to like be a delightful surprise where you're like, I just didn't expect that to happen next. You know, and I think 
Another great example of that is the next short I wanted to talk about, which is Magician Mickey, uh, which I hope gets restored by Disney soon because the version that's on YouTube is not terribly great quality wise, but it's Mickey performing a stage magician show and Donald Duck is in in the balcony, sort of like a Statler and Waldorf, sort of heckling Mickey as he is trying to perform this stage magic. And so, of course, Mickey is able to get back at Donald by involving him in the show. Donald gets turned into a kangaroo and a chimpanzee. He gets boxed around by a cactus. There's just gag after gag after gag after gag in this one. And it basically works as a silent short because there's, I think the only, the only line of dialogue is Mickey saying, like, be careful, it's loaded when Donald takes a flare gun off of him. And so it just escalates and escalates and escalates. And to me, this magician Mickey is probably one of the funniest ones that I watched for this. Again, because it is just 100% gag driven. Like, it is that basic, simple premise And then it just runs through as many gags as possible in seven minutes and then ends with a great finale. Yeah, so this isn't one that I really picked up on. There were a few others that I had uh, kind of skipped around to to look for specific things. But I think that, you know, the films, we've really talked about, you know, did they have new technological innovations? Did they have these great story beats, obviously the invention of the storyboard and my, and many modern audiences kind of hyper fixation on like the standard narrative story structure. I think it's great that they had this amazing period where they could do both because in so many of the films, as we look through the history, we see Walt complaining like, oh, these guys just know how to do gags. Well, yeah. Because that's, that's what this was at this point. And it's, it's just really cool to be able to look at some of these that they were allowed to go wild and just lean into the gags. Whereas the films, as we might have said a few different times, the idea of a difference between like a movie and a film, like the shorts didn't have to try to be the cinematic version of high literature. They could just be fun. And, you know, a lot of them, there are issues, but a, a lot of them you could still watch today or you could still show a kid today and they are just fun and enjoyable. Through the Mirror and the next short that I want to talk about, The Brave Little Taylor, are almost perfectly balanced in that way where there are a ton of gags, but there is also a really strong story. Whereas Magician Mickey is 100% just a gag machine. Like I said, it is set up to be like, here's the premise. We're going to throw as many fun, crazy, funny ideas as we can and and then get out. But The Brave Little Tailor was produced, uh, it came out in 1938. So it was produced simultaneously while Snow White is getting made. And it's based on a Brothers Grimm story. They had talked about doing it as a silly symphony as early as 1934. But it was one of these where it was like, shelves because they couldn't figure it out and then they would come back to it and they still couldn't figure it out over and over again until comic strip artist al telefero uh, contributed a sketch of the giant and also added mickey and a mule that had appeared in ye olden days which was a previous mickey cartoon and sort of like just captured the idea of basically like oh instead of just trying to make the brave little tailor as an adaptation of the brothers grim with original characters let's make it a mickey cartoon 
And again, kind of drawing off some of the period or quote-unquote costume Mickeys that had kind of come already and something like Through the Mirror, uh, it was really like, let's put Mickey into this pre-existing story. And Walt was really trying to make this a short with the like production and animation quality of a feature. So there's like a ton of crowd scenes with a lot of characters. The setting is really lavish. The animation it looks really, really good. It, it feels expensive, basically. They simplified the original story, again, to get it down to that sort of seven, eight minute runtime. But Mickey is a tailor who kills seven flies at once and is overheard that people think that he is a giant killer, even though he's just a tailor. And so the... You know, it, this whole sort of situation gets out of control and Mickey is tasked with, you know, finding a and killing the giant. I really like the way that the giant is portrayed here. And it's sort of interesting after watching Fun and Fancy Free with Mickey and the Beanstalk and Mickey fighting that giant, that this giant looks really different. Uh, the design here was by Bill Titla. And the giant is amazing in this and feels more menacing than the giant from fun and fancy free but i do like the through line that of mickey sneezing around giants so in fun and fancy free he gets caught up in the giant snuff box in his pocket and then in this mickey is rolled into a cigarette made of hay and a big tarp or something like a big like canvas and mickey sneezes his way out of it so there is this sort of recurring gag of like maybe mickey's just allergic to giants which i think is really fun and, and again, of course, I think as we talked about in at least one of our episodes, they would reuse stuff a lot and even remake their own shorts because people didn't have, you know, Disney Plus or even VHS or anything back then. So like once you left the theater, you had to hold on to your memory of the thing that you saw. And if somebody watching Fun and Fancy Free in the 1940s was like, oh, yeah, 10 years ago, I feel like Mickey sneezed on a giant earlier like nobody cared because so much so much time had passed and changed and people weren't as able to rewatch things over and over again and really sort of internalize all of the minute details that we do now. CinemaSins never would have existed in the 1930s is, is what I'm saying. But I, I really like this. I Like I said, I really like the stuff with the giant. The scene where Mickey is in the giant's mouth and we get like a point of view shot and you see the back of the giant's teeth and then there's like pumpkins like floating around Mickey in the darkness. Like it looks, it just looks fantastic. And I think the story is fun and, and cute and whatever, but the animation itself really struck me on this one. Yeah, I love this one. When I'm looking at movies, I am frequently annoyed when conflict is caused by people not being able to communicate, which is essentially the basis of every romantic comedy to ever exist. If you know, having a five-minute conversation resolves your entire plot. I, I feel like, generally speaking, you don't have a good plot. That being said, it works so well here. Because Mickey being grandiose about, you know, oh, I killed seven in one blow. I've done that. I mean, I've, I haven't killed seven in one blow. I once, you know, there was a mosquito buzzing around because I live in the South. And I was so annoyed I was trying to read. And I just, like reached up and like snapped my thumb and index finger together and I caught it by a leg and I'm like okay I am officially a superhero because like this isn't a thing that happens so that's very realistic but then just the idea that Mickey just 
can't get out of this situation. And then he tries to say no to all the money. But if he's offered many, he will do anything, which is just one of those recurrent kind of themes to his character. It built up such a great stance for what I guess I am just going to keep repeating is kind of like the thesis of the character that like Mickey is not made to do anything that he has done. He it he is not meant for it in any way, shape, or form, and yet he manages to succeed. And you see that so well in the fact that his knife or sword, it's kind of played in different ways, is just his scissors because he is a tailor and that, you know, he doesn't kill this giant. He still gets many. He didn't actually complete his task, but he used the skills he did have to do what he needed to. I just feel like, is it the best story ever written? Of course not. But it's a really good Mickey story because it Mm -hmm. is so in line with his character. Other than that, I mean, it is really beautiful. I think that there's just gorgeous animation. And then I I have two things I want to point out. One fun and one that people will start to get annoyed with me at what I'm picking at. The fun one is... Anyone who is listening to this with a computer or phone nearby, which should be most of you, go to Google and look up Brave Little Taylor. On Google Images, you can find a poster of it and you'll see what he looks like. And then open another tab and type in Gaston. They're wearing the same outfit. Not exactly, but very, very similar. Which is very interesting because the giant in the Brave Little Taylor is so innocent. He doesn't know what he's doing is wrong. He's just living his life and he just happens to be bigger than everybody. Like, there is no malice in this character. He's just, like, going through life and things aren't going well, which is kind of hilarious because it's very in line with, like, the reluctant dragon. Mm -hmm. And so he is this traditional fairy tale villain who has been turned into, if not the hero at least just kind of an innocent compared to Gaston, who is everything the traditional Disney hero is, but of course is our villain. So I, I just loved that because it's very similar colors. It's not exactly the same, but I think it would have been if the movies were created closer. And they're... Anyway, so that's that's just my fun fact. My, my one gripe with this is just... I, I just can't handle anthropomorphic characters is, is the long and short of this. But so Mickey, I'm, I'm fine with humans and animals all just like living together in that society. That's fine. But I have the same question that I have with Mr. Krabs and Pearl in SpongeBob. So Mickey, Mickey is, you know, brought to the king and the king is a dog. Uh, as, as far as I can tell anyway. A, a, a dog man. Yes, but, like, the species is dog. Right. Not, like, a Pluto dog, though. More like a goofy dog. Yes. Like, he he is, like, personified. But the princess is Minnie Mouse. How how did a dog have a a mouse baby? I, I know that that's a stupid question to ask. But if you're going to provide distinct family lines, especially when I know that Donald's nephews are all just baby Donald's and Daisy is very much just Donald, but with a bow. Like they have set up that species are very rigid in their looks. 
except apparently a dog can have a mouse for a child, which just, it doesn't matter. I know it doesn't matter, but I'm going to gripe on it anyway. Look, I'm just saying it's an unintended consequence of species blind casting. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm fine if it's like an adoption situation. That's, that's fine, but I'm not saying, well, you know what I am saying? Disney put out a film that was like the, the story of menstruation. So they got into sex education. So I need the sex education of the characters in the world of Mickey Mouse. You know, we talked about when we had Pedro the plane, we saw anatomy and he has like bones going around the plane shape. We're going to see in something that we'll talk about in a while that like it is canonical that Mickey's brain is like his full head and ears. Mm -hmm. So we have gotten biology lessons on the characters in various Disney films. And I just need to know genes and reproduction work. So that's, that's your task, Disney. Uh, or anybody else. Uh, in a couple of years, you'll have your opportunity to answer my questions. Not only does Mickey have uh, brains that extend into his ears, but his ears are also detachable, we find out later. So... I think it's there's a lot of questions. Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. Again, <laughs> going back to the spirit of the character, as you so well define, whatever it takes. <laughs> the The next short comes from 1941. This is called the Nifty 90s, but it's about the 1890s. And it is Mickey and Minnie on a date in the Victorian era in a very J. Thaddeus Toad-like automobile uh, or, or motor car, I should say. Uh, going to see a like stage show that has uh, a dance number it has a sad song and it's very cute and I mostly wanted to to show it as like the evolving style of the way that Mickey and Minnie are being drawn because this has more of the sort of flesh tone face shall we say of Mickey and Minnie but I really liked all of the the period details and I think it also really typifies uh, Mickey's role during the war years, uh, which we only barely ta talked about in our Victory Through Air Power episode. So, Megan, if you want to talk a little bit about uh, Mickey during the war. The documentary really goes through the decades, the Mickey Mouse documentary. And one of the quotes that they give about World War II is that Mickey's presence in World War II tended to rely on the home front. You see him on support posters, getting people to carpool, rationing, selling war bonds, supporting the war effort, not from the front line, but at home. What I will say is there is a fascinating section in the documentary about how Mickey played into the Holocaust, where people in children in the Holocaust would put on plays of Mickey or would draw cartoons of Mickey for hope. And that is amazing and empowering and you should definitely see that portion of the documentary but at least within the united states mickey wasn't the war effort that was donald we have talked about donald he was going into the army and he was you know getting people to pay their taxes and buy war bonds mickey was not the soldier and they very explicitly did not want him to become a soldier and so you do see this kind of idea of how do you be an American, and an American man in many ways, in a time of war if you're not in the war. 
And that really kind of becomes critical to his character. And I think that a lot of that goes back to kind of the sense that if you couldn't be the warrior, then you should be the chivalric knight, which is very kind of in line with Mickey and Minnie's just utter devotion. Mickey will do anything for Minnie. And it's, it's very rarely lecherous. That's usually given to Pete. Uh, there are exceptions. But generally speaking, it is supporting your wife and your family and helping on the home front and taking those jobs that were still around for men during the war eras and just kind of trying to make sure that the country is strong and still going once the war is over. Because if, you know, if you win the war, but your country disintegrates in the process, did, did you really win? Mickey is kind of emblematic of making sure that the country stays strong and stays kind of in line with the values that were being pushed at the time without becoming the soldier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Nifty 90s uh, as well from 1941, as well as 1942's Mickey's birthday party, exemplify that feeling and that sort of almost like cozy nostalgia and hopefulness. You know, it, it's it feels very much building on the sense of like, well, Mickey got us through the Depression by sort of being perseverance and you know, making us laugh and, and making us feel good. And so I think, you know, sort of separating Mickey doing the home front stuff and Donald doing the wartime stuff was actually pretty smart on uh, Disney's part. As far as propaganda is concerned, there were a lot of really interesting things going on between World War One and World War Two, And there are some great food history books, especially that talk about like what American food became and how that projected these ideals. But I think that one of the really interesting things in World War II was that they were really trying to clean up the image of the American man. So, like, if you were in the army, you often would be sent, you know, cigarettes or alcohol or pornography magazines. But that's not what we want to present. That's not the wholesome American soldier. The wholesome American soldier is Mickey Mouse put into a bad situation. He wants to come home and be with his wife and his friends and, you know, drink a Coca-Cola and have just a happy, good time. And I think that it was kind of very important for the U.S. to break those two images apart. That, yes, we need people who can fight in the war and take down the Nazis, but we also need to keep in mind what real American masculinity was, which, of course, at that point was still a very white patriarchal view but was based on peace you know in this era uh mickey also wins his first academy award for best animated short film in 1941 so which he won for lend a paw which if we're being honest while it is considered the 115th entry in the mickey mouse shorts uh series it's a pluto cartoon like it's (laughs) it this is the one where Pluto basically adopts a kitten by accident. Uh, That kitten is very much modeled after Figaro from Pinocchio, uh, who sort of became a stock character in all of these Mickey cartoons from the era. If you haven't seen this, it's very famous for uh, Pluto having the 
angel Pluto and the devil Pluto on each shoulder as he decides what to do. So if you've seen that clip or image pop up somewhere, it's it's probably from the short. It became a thing that occurred a few other times. But just just of note that I think it's it's kind of, you know, again, like underdog-ish that, you know, Mickey basically wasn't even the star of the only cartoon that he won an Oscar for. Yeah, that's definitely something that we see kind of building at this time period. And I think that one of the kind of interesting comparison points that we can see that with is 1942's short, Mickey's Birthday Party. So this is a celebration of Mickey Mouse, at least in theory. And basically, you know, all of his friends throw a party and they get an organ but Mickey doesn't exactly do a great job, so Minnie ends up playing it and, you know, they all have fun and then there's disasters with cake and, and all of that. But it's still very wholesome and it's very ensemble-driven, which we can compare pretty directly with The Three Caballeros, which came out in 1945, which was Donald Duck's birthday. As those of you who are regular listeners will remember, Donald Duck has a much less wholesome birthday. This is an extremely lecherous version of Donald Duck, but his entire birthday is about going out and claiming things and living this extravagant lifestyle alongside his friends and chasing women at the beach. And it's, it just shows really kind of jarringly how big that difference was. That, you know, Mickey had to be the gentleman where Donald could go a little bit crazy. And that starts to lead to what a lot of people call the downfall of Mickey. Post-war Mickey was primarily focused on domestic life, which, if we're making the connection between Walt and Mickey, is pretty in line with Walt's own experiences. The 40s were really awful for Walt. And so, in a lot of ways, he would kind of set up plans and then grab his family and run away to Europe for, you know, a couple of months and just live peaceful domestic life. And while that's, you know, a vision for many people, that's exactly what they want, it, it's not as fun in cartoons. And this was partially intentional. So as the Mickey Mouse documentary said, once Mickey becomes an international children's star, there's certain things he cannot do. Parents of Mickey's younger viewers wanted Mickey to clean up his act and not be as bad of an influence. It's not that he was necessarily a bad influence to begin with, but he was scrappy, and that doesn't always mean following the rules. When you are, you know, a role model to children, you have to kind of clean up your act. And the straight man, the one who's doing everything right, is very boring in comedic setups which again leads to the rise of Donald and Goofy, and especially in the 50s, the rise of Pluto. I want to come back to this, this point later when we talk about the more recent Mickey stuff, because the way that they solve this problem, I think is actually very interesting and novel. But I did also want to make sure that we mention The Simple Things, uh, which was the last regular installment of the Mickey Mouse short film series. It was the 126th entry. That comes out in 1953. Mickey and Pluto go fishing and are pestered by a flock of seagulls, or really one seagull. And this is on Disney Plus as well. I was not impressed. And it's kind of sad that I feel like 
Mickey goes out on a note where one, he's not really the main character of the short. Two, the short looks rather shabby, I think, compared to a lot of the, the ones from the 30s and 40s. Uh, in terms of like the backgrounds feel very plain. There's not a lot of like change in setting. And also he has eyebrows for some reason. And <laughs> there's only a brief period where he has, where Mickey has eyebrows. He usually doesn't unless it's like, you know, a sort of a, a comedic effect moment where like his eyebrow will pop out. And normally they're not visible. And I found it deeply unsettling, and I did not like it. And I'm glad that they took his eyebrows away almost immediately after this cartoon. (laughs) I mean, I think that eyebrows have the ability to add so many expressions. And by the time, you know, we get to this short, it's 1953, and they were really working with their live-action models and seeing how the twitch of an eyebrow could do something. So I can understand that they thought it would help. I agree. I don't think it looks good. I also just don't think that Mickey matters. As you said, I I would say that this is a Pluto cartoon. And if we're looking at minor characters, after Pluto comes the seagull. And then I would still say the clam comes before Mickey. So there's all of these various animals that are getting in Mickey and Pluto's way where all they're trying to do is is Pluto wants to eat food and relax and Mickey wants to fish. And the fish and the birds are not, not really on board with that. But because it's such a simple activity, it just does not feel like a Mickey Mouse cartoon. And it is really disappointing that that would be the end, that he doesn't really get the triumphant story or a good send-off, but he just kind of fizzles out for a while there he fizzles out for a while at least in terms of being on movie screens and we'll we'll catch up with mickey on screen in a little bit we have a few other places that mickey shows up that we need to talk about first the first of which is the mickey mouse club which you know if you ever want to know who is the leader of the club that is made for you and me i'm sure you already know the answer i don't have to spell it out for you (laughs) (laughs) But per uh, D23, the Fox Dome Theater in Ocean Park, California in 1929 began a Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, Soon, hundreds of other of Mickey Mouse Clubs uh, associated with theaters popped up all over the country. These were real clubs in which kids joined. They attended Saturday, Saturday meetings where Mickey Mouse cartoons were shown. There was a Chief Mickey and a Chief Minnie elected to lead the club. Mickey Mouse credos were recited. There were Mickey Mouse Club bands. So this is a sort of a popular children's social club organized around Cult. going to movies. <laughs> um, by 1932, apparently the uh, nas- nationwide, the Mickey Mouse Club would have a million members. It did start to sort of, you know, fizzle out as these things kind of do. But the... It lent its name at least to a television show that ran from 1955 intermittently all the way up to 1996, including some well-known faces to younger Gen X and elder millennials, and apparently still exists on social media in some form as of 2017. But the Mickey Mouse Club eventually will have to do somewhat of its own episode, because I don't really... I've never seen any of the Mickey Mouse Club television stuff directly. 
but I also did not know that it pre-existed. That I thought it was totally invented for the TV show. I did not realize that it was sort of this spontaneous organization that that just went viral in the nineteen late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties. Yeah, I really like and would love to do like a historical study of those early years because they did seem to kind of come out of nowhere and they were very viewer driven, which is really interesting because as we've discussed, Mickey was not that popular for that long, but he hooked people in these really terrific ways. However, and I am just going to reference back to that documentary again, if you want to think of Mickey as wholesome, watch the shorts. If you want to be really creeped out, watch the documentary because you'll get to see these early pictures of the Mickey Mouse Clubs and people are wearing masks that are terrifying. Mm -hmm. They're very kind of boxy and seeing a room of like 50 children all wearing these like demented mouse heads. And I can't even imagine if they were just like reciting... Mickey Mouse rule one, we must always walk with a pep in our step. You know, I, I joked about a cult, but I, I, I think that if Disney had really run with that, they, they probably could have made the Mickey Mouse Club into a Jonestown-esque situation because it really seems to have, like, hooked people that deeply. Mickey was also very popular in the pages of comics and in comic <laughs> strips. Uh <laughs> I don't know how else to follow that. <laughs> That's just such a hilarious transition. You're like, I, I don't know how to respond to, to you pretending I, that Mickey Mouse is a cult. So uh... My brain went to some places that I cannot share on the air. And so, <laughs> so besides being a, a, a cult leader, Mickey also spent his time uh, in the pages of comics and uh, in newspaper strips as well, uh, beginning in 1930. Floyd Godfordson was the the main sort of creator behind the Mickey Mouse comic strip, which he was in charge of from 1930 until 1975. And so there were there were comic books both in the U.S. like Mickey Mouse, uh, Mickey Mouse Mystery Magazine, Wizards of Mickey, and in the United States. And then also Mickey was very popular in Italy. Um, there was a comic called Topolino, which is Mickey's name in Italian, uh, that ran for a very, very long time. It also lends its name to Topolino's Terrace, which is a very, very good Mediterranean cuisine restaurant at Disney's Riviera Resort, which I dined at the last time I was in Disney World for my birthday, and the food was excellent. Complete diversion, but that's now what I associate Topolino for. I think it's a cute nod back to the comics that they've integrated into the theme park. Fans writing to Disney and ask asking how they could meet Mickey and Minnie was was one of the many, but a very important factor in the development of the idea that would become Disneyland as well. So Mickey is kind of, you know, in comics, in clubs, on TV. But he didn't really appear in a major way in sort of like really new, fully fleshed out material between 1953 and 1983 until they made Mickey's Christmas Carol in 1983, which is the, it ran in theaters and it was sort of the return uh, of Mickey Mouse. We talked in our Fantasia episode as as that was sort of the first sort of Mickey Mouse resurgence era. And this is at least the second one in 1983 where 
the Disney company actually put out a record based around the idea of Mickey's Christmas Carol. They then developed it into a featurette because it's a little bit longer than a regular short film, but it, it is really good. We didn't watch it for this, but I've seen it before many times. And it was just nice to have Mickey sort of come back in a big way. Uh, they also did an adaptation of The Prince and the Pauper, which was very much sort of similar runtime, similar concept. Mickey obviously plays both the prince and the pauper characters who switch places. Mickey's Christmas Carol did mark the debut of Wayne Alwyn as Mickey, who was the voice of Mickey from 1977 until he passed away in 2009. Yeah, so I think that one of the really interesting things about kind of Mickey's absence is that while he was absent from the screen, he was absolutely not absent from pop culture, which created this really kind of complicated position for him as a symbol. So in the Mickey Mouse documentary, they explain that Mickey Mouse is one of the top three icons of the 20th century, and that these three icons are Mickey Mouse, okay, cool, Adolf Hitler, which, you know, very different, very different tone, uh, but also absolutely very iconic, uh, and then the Coca-Cola bottle, which, as someone from Georgia, I just have to say is kind of cool, also tied in with the World War II propaganda, etc. But he was one of the top three symbols of the entire century, and yet he basically was non-existent for 30 years. And what this did was really kind of create a popular sense of Mickey, where the corporation didn't know what to do with him, but the people knew what he meant. And so there's multiple different versions of kind of counterculture Mickey that start popping up as these different forms of hope or of kind of subverting social norms that become really kind of critical to Mickey being part of American culture, both the good and the bad. You know, he was again, off screen since 1953, but in 1978, he became the first cartoon character to have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. How, how does that make any sense? He hasn't done anything in 20 years. But it was just that Mickey was kind of becoming kind of this three-part figure. There was Mickey as he was in the shorts, which basically just didn't exist. Mickey as a symbol of the Disney Corporation, which I think is in a lot of ways what we see him as today. And then Mickey as the symbol of hope and resistance and unconventionality that probably was not something Walt was, would have been a fan of. I have a feeling there were a lot of socialist movements that probably were, were very pro-Mickey that Walt would not have been a fan of. But it created this really complicated sense of things where they didn't quite know how to handle Mickey. They didn't want him to be a counterculture figure, but they also didn't want to basically kill him by putting out movies that were completely against what people thought of him. And so there's another quote from the documentary that just really stood out to me that is, by the 1980s, things were getting weird for Mickey Mouse because he had become almost this divine figure that you didn't mess with. And it's this very interesting point of when 
does culture become sacred? And who gets to decide? Is Mickey Mouse the figure of the people or is he the figure of the Disney Corporation? Obviously, by that point, he wasn't as much the figure of Walt, but he, he was this complex figure that they didn't quite know what to do with. And so occasionally, uh, once they finally brought him back in the 80s and then into the 90s, they did some weird things <laughs> because they didn't know what else to do. So after they do Christmas Carol and Prince and the Pauper, and they're like, maybe Mickey is this character that we sort of pop into you know, literary adaptations, and which does harken back to some of the earlier shorts that we talked about. That kind of falls by the wayside again for a while. And then in 1995, we get Runaway Brain. So directed by Chris Bailey, it was kind of an experiment to see how they could, you know, bring Mickey into the 90s. And so the way that they tried to do that was going back to the 1930s. In this, Mickey accidentally promised accidentally promises Minnie a trip to Hawaii instead of a mini golf night because he has been busy playing a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs video game and not planning out uh, what they're going to do for their anniversary. So he needs cash. Pluto shows him a newspaper advertisement where he can, he can earn the exact amount needed uh, <laughs> just for, for uh, mindless work. <laughs> and so he shows up to the castle of Dr. Frank and Ollie, uh, named after Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, two of the nine old men. And so he's a mad scientist and switches Mickey's brain with that of a creature called Julius, who is basically like an even bigger version of uh, Peg Lake Pete. The experiment is successful. So uh, Mickey's body has Julius's mind and it turns Mickey into sort of an evil mirror version of himself. Uh, for those who are familiar with the simpsons treehouse of horror segment where bart has an evil twin that has been living in the attic named hugo very similar kind of take on taking a you know classic character and making sort of a more monstrous uh version of them and then mickey is now in julius's mickey's brain is now in julius's head and wants to protect uh minnie because julius in mickey's body has basically gone feral wanting to go after Minnie. All sorts of hijinks ensue. There's a lot of references to classic horror films. There are nods to many, uh, there's many Disney Easter eggs in there. Zazu appears at least once. There's some other deep cut references here and there. Kelsey Grammer voices Dr. Frankenali, and it was kind of weird hearing a voice that I know very well in this Mickey cartoon. This was actually released in theaters with a kid in King Arthur's Court in 1996 after it debuted. So it was screened at the 1996 Cannes Film Festival uh, as a short. And then it was first released in North America in front of a kid in King Arthur's Court. Various Disney movies, it would kind of come and go. And so it was kind of a... One of those, like, critically well-receptive, but there were a lot of parents who were not happy about this short because the little monster version of Mickey, I guess, is kind of scary. I think he's kind of cute, but this is one that a lot of people haven't seen. It's not even on YouTube. I had to go to the Internet Archive to find it, so you can definitely watch it there. I think it's well worth checking out. It very much 
looks like the Renaissance era of Disney animation. This comes out the same year as Pocahontas. And so like it looks really the animation I think is is really good. The story is kind of okay, but it's kind of fun that it actually like exists. And this is one where I feel like there's been a lot of sort of, you know, urban legends about like it's been buried by Disney or whatever. And I just figure that I just think they just don't really know what to do with it at this point. When I first watched it, I had to go back and check the notes because I felt like this was something that not Disney made and then Disney either suppressed or bought so that they could use it. I was pleasantly surprised that it actually was done by Disney. And overall, I actually really enjoyed it. It kept kind of the fundamentals of the characters while giving them a, in my opinion, very needed genre shift. I think that it, I frankly would watch a longer version of this. I would actually watch a full-length movie that plays with this kind of idea. I think it was very interesting, and to some extent, they needed to go bold to try to revive Mickey. And, you know, going back to someone bringing back a dead body seems like exactly the way to do that. I think that it ends up being really well drawn. Uh, I'm kind of bothered by the fact that the zombie evil Mickey just like sees a picture of Minnie and is like, I must have her. But that's very in line with kind of the Mickey and Pete Mm -hmm. uh, dynamics. Mickey loves her from the beginning. Pete lusts after her very frequently. So it, it does a blend that's very good there. I will say as one other inspiration that kind of stood out to me, going back to kind of looking at the image of evil Mickey with this kind of personality transplant. My personal favorite Scooby-Doo movie is Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School, which came out in 1988. So it would have been out by this point. I don't think many people like this movie, but I love it. This was the era of Scooby-Doo where monsters actually did exist. Like it wasn't all costumes. And so they like hang out with the children of famous like literary villains and monsters but anyway in that movie shaggy gets kind of swapped with his mirror self who is evil and it's a very similar character design everything gets sharpened kind of jagged looking hair and and skin and facial features there's definitely some critical differences but I, I do wonder if, if we dug in a little bit more, we would see late 80s, early 90s have this trend of these classic beloved animated characters going evil. It's certainly not a long-term plot in the ghoul school. Shaggy is like a good person for the majority of it. But just getting to see the alter egos of these characters that are, if not, you know, models of morality, at least very distinctly good characters i think is very in line with the rise of metafilm the upcoming uh horror revival uh once we get to scream and kind of its meta horror themes i think that it's really interesting to see that in a lot of ways what the horror genre was going to get to just a few years later the animation genre was doing itself to try and breathe new life into these characters that hadn't been 
terribly successful or prominent in the decades uh, preceding. And so after Runaway Brain, Mickey kind of just goes back to being on TV. There's a couple different series, like we've referenced House of Mouse before, and some other series targeted towards younger viewers. And so, you know, by the time we get to the 2010s, the, the sort of tone at Disney changes, and they're like, okay, if we want people to care about Mickey, we have to let people do things with Mickey. And so we start to see sort of almost like a Mickey renaissance happening, especially within the past 10 years. So Brett, Brett Iwan, who was previously a Hallmark greeting card artist, is the current official voice of Mickey uh, in almost all capacities. Uh, Chris Diamantopoulos also voices Mickey on the 2013 and newer uh, animated series that has gone under a few titles that we'll talk about shortly. And as of up to the presidency of Barack Obama, Mickey has met every U.S. president since Harry Truman, with the exception of Lyndon Johnson and presumably Donald Trump, because I don't remember that happening. And Obama referred to Mickey as, uh, quote, a world leader who has bigger ears than me, which is just so very Obama of him to say, honestly. 18 years after Runaway Brain, we get Get a Horse in 2013, which screened uh, in front of Frozen, uh, a movie that, you know, I'm sure many people have heard of. Um, <laughs> it turned out to be very popular. And so at the very least, this might be the widest scene Mickey Short since the 1940s, maybe, maybe even going further back. But it was kind of advertised as a tongue-in-cheek, quote-unquote, lost Mickey cartoon from, like, the early 1930s. And so there's, like, a framing, a frame within the frame uh, that we're seeing a classic lost Mickey cartoon. And about halfway through the short, uh, Mickey rips through the theater screen and goes from 2D to 3D. And then hijinks ensue with cartoon characters going in and out of the the, the frame uh, there's a really great sequence where uh, pete is repeatedly injured and mickey flips the screen around like a flip book to rewind so that he gets injured over and over and over again and i really like this it's very self-referential it literally breaks the fourth wall at one point but i i really enjoy just seeing the classic look of the characters and how they translated them into 3d i also was very happy to see that there's a little oswald cameo as sort of an easter egg uh, in the short as well and so i i really like this i was hoping that we were going to get more kind of in this style of of actually doing kind of 3d animated shorts with mickey but i remember just being really really excited about this uh seeing it in front of frozen and then I'm also glad that it's now on Disney Plus, a really, you know, accessible and easy to find for people. This was definitely a good way to bring back Mickey. I think that it does the job very well. I really think that, you know, some of the ways they played with the screen, especially for Mickey and Minnie, because Minnie figures it out too. And she's like, I will hold on to things so I don't get tossed around, but Pete, Pete will. I, I thought it was a very clever way of doing things. And it kind of goes back to some of the things in The Reluctant Dragon where they can kind of, oh, it's a flip book and let's see how these things kind of transport from here is literally how you make a movie to the characters in their own right. I think it's a great idea. I personally feel it goes on too long. It's about the same length as all the other shorts. 
it just, it seems to kind of keep retreading the same ground, which is an unfortunate thing as far as I'm concerned. I will say that there is an episode of uh, Charmed that did more or less this idea, possibly twice, I can't remember, but essentially movie villains were coming through screens and then, like, the romantic lead of Phoebe Hallowell's favorite movie came out and helped them to fight the various creatures. It did some really cool things there, and I feel like in some ways did a better job, just because there was more variety. In a lot of ways, the get a horse just kind of repeats like, let's chase in and out of the screen 20 times. Let's flip the screen over and over. And I feel like just a little bit more difference especially since there are so many characters in it, that if we had seen more of them doing things than just, like, Mickey and Minnie, it could have been just a little bit better. But overall, I think that it was just a a very well done kind of play with the character and play with the animation styles that was, and becomes even more so now, this big part of the... I'm going to say second, but it's probably later, big meta era, which was in the 2010s of, you know, Frozen, oh, you can't marry a guy that you just met, and Wreck-It Ralph, and of course what we'll eventually get in Wreck-It Ralph 2, of all the princesses meeting and kind of mocking their own stories. I think that we're definitely heading into the period of Disney mocking its past, but only because it can get away with doing it without harming its past. I think it's it's kind of a um, metatextual version of lampshading, mm-hmm. where they can kind of be like, yeah, this was silly or stupid, or even this was really bad, but look at how far we've come. We can, you know, acknowledge that and also acknowledge the cool technological innovations and all of the great things about classic Mickey. So I think this definitely is kind of symbolic of a overall shift in the 2010s of Disney's mindset, where it wasn't necessarily pure nostalgia, it was critical nostalgia. Although how genuine those critiques are is is certainly up for debate. I see what you mean about the short kind of feeling repetitive, and I think that's probably a function of the camera not moving mm-hmm. and there being only so much you can do with that sort of static shot of like the interior of the theater and then the screen within it and sort of everything is happening within that frame. I do think that does limit it a little bit, but I think that spirit of sort of playing with Disney iconography in fun ways really takes off with the, Mickey Mouse, and then the continuation of the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse that has been running since 2013 and is about to wrap up the day after we <laughs> record this episode. But these are 2D animated shorts, which then evolve into 2D animated like half-hour specials that have are basically made up of shorts. But when it launched in 2013, uh, I remember them being on YouTube, I think, uh, and also on the on on the Disney Channel, I definitely watched a few of them on YouTube, but they're like three minute shorts, so they're less than half as long as the original run of shorts, which again were usually about seven to eight minutes at most. Uh, these were like three to four minutes at most, sometimes even shorter. 
And so I, I picked a few of them to go through. There's a ton of great ones. They're all on Disney+. Plus. If you like Mickey at all, if you like cartoons, I would highly recommend. And so I wanted to call out just a couple of these that I thought were really fun and, and said something interesting about the character. The first one that really jumped out to me is uh, one called Fire Escape, where... Mickey is going to Minnie's apartment. He sees smoke coming out of the top floor of the building where, where her apartment is. And he has to rescue her because he thinks the building is on fire. He helps save everyone in the building, finally gets up to Minnie's apartment and, and discovers that the smoke pouring out is because uh, she's been trying to cook him dinner and does not know how to cook. Which, one, is just a great button. Like, there's... This has like a button on a button too, because then the firefighters show up right as Mickey is about to eat uh, a completely burned to a crisp full chicken uh, and blast him with a hose, which gets him out of having to tell Minnie that uh, her cooking is terrible. But uh, what I really like about the way that they portray Mickey in this whole series is they get around the idea of Mickey being the straight man by making him sort of really high strung and having like anxiety. And so now you have like Donald is the angry one. Goofy is sort of the like, oh, shucks, happy go lucky. Doesn't really understand what's going on around him one. And Mickey is the one who's like anxious and, and has like high energy and is always trying to make things go perfectly all the time. And I think that is a really one, a very modern interpretation but doesn't feel too far off from the Mickey we've seen over the past, you know, almost 100 years at this point. Second one I want to talk about is called Wish, Up, Wish Upon a Coin. Uh, so it opens with Mickey and Minnie going to a wishing well. They pass by Snow White. The seven dwarfs are in this cartoon as well. And everybody's throwing coins into a well and making wishes. And then Pete jumps out of the well, having stolen all of the coins and drives off. And so Mickey goes to get the coins back so that everyone's wishes will come true. And Minnie is on crowd control. There's a few moments in this one that have become like recurring memes or like popular Twitter gifts, uh, which is really fun. And so, you know, at the end, everyone's everyone's wishes come true. We see the dwarves. Uh, they all wished for hair in addition to their beards except for Dopey, who apparently just wished for a beard because he didn't have one before. Uh, and so there's a lot of fun, just like visual gags and just a really, a lot of Disney references where, you know, Minnie is telling people like, oh, you know, instead of wishing on a well, like, why don't you wish upon a star or wait for your prince to come? <laughs> or, and she keeps trying to give them suggestions of how to sort of calm down uh, using a lot of classic Disney references, which is really fun. And this also exemplifies that like in this series, Mickey and Minnie together are just like very into each other. They are extremely romantic together and are constantly like in love to the point where they are shutting out the entire world around them, which is really fun. And then no, I wanted to call out because again, I think it really exemplifies this sort of characterization of this sort of high strung version of Mickey because in this short Everyone, he keeps saying yes to people like Goofy wants to borrow his chair and his car and Minnie comes over to, to borrow a stick of butter and and on and on and on. And Mickey realizes that he is literally incapable of saying no. Uh, and so he goes to Donald to teach him how to say no, which Donald does by inflicting violence upon him until Mickey says no to stop. And then Mickey starts saying no to everybody, ends up in prison, escapes from prison 
And then all of the things that he said yes to at the beginning, which included the three little pigs deconstructing his house, comes back around and everyone's like, oh, Mickey, you're so helpful. We're just, we're all returning the favor. And so it, it sort of proves this sort of like nice guys don't finish last kind of thing. But it really showcases the like people pleasing nature of this version of mickey and this take on mickey that's really fun and the end gag is really great because all those people are like because he the whole thing starts where he just wants to watch a movie with minnie and have popcorn with butter on it in 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 his house and then at the end everybody shows up and they're like oh like mickey like we want to like we want to join you for this movie night if you don't mind and he goes yes yes i do mind (laughs) so it really does the yes no thing and again for a three minute short it's just like perfectly executed it's very funny but i think also sends like a good message to people in terms of thinking about the things that we say no and yes to and and all that i I think it's it's one of my favorites of this whole series yeah i definitely really enjoyed that as someone who is terrible at saying no to things (laughs) because i think that it especially when we're in a world where there are so many remakes and where everything is so so driven on nostalgia the question every time that there's a reboot is always like is this for new kids or fans of the original and i feel like this does both really well because you have a good lesson for kids on sharing but you also have a good lesson for anxiety riddled adults who don't know how to say no to also like learn how to say no in a more polite way or a more reasonable way. And I think that it really manages to communicate with both of them. And I think that you see kind of similar things as the show keeps going on. I particularly liked the episode Hats Off in 2018 because essentially the entire plot of it is Minnie is looking at buying a new hat, which is identical to her original hat. Which is one of the fun things, because at least when I was a kid, Minnie was synonymous with the ears and the bow. And so this version of Minnie does stand out a little bit. It's clear that she's a little bit closer tied to the original. And essentially she's like, oh yeah, I wouldn't be who I am without my hat. And Donald and Goofy are like, oh, we wouldn't be who we are without our hats. And Daisy's like, oh, or me without my bow. And Mickey's like, yeah, or me without, oh wait because he doesn't have a hat. And so he goes to a hat store and he tries on a different hat. And essentially he goes through an entire identity crisis because he doesn't have a hat, which is ridiculous and relatable at the same time, Uh, (laughs) which I love. And so he, he tries on like the hat of a construction worker and all these construction workers come up and they're like, hey man, let's go get lunch. And he's like, oh, this is really cool until he's, you know, thousands of feet in the air and freaks out. And it's so, it's really just this fun exploration of like, what happens when you are unsure of your identity and what happens when you try to be someone you're not? And along with kind of these actually good lessons, we see him wear hats that he has worn before. So for instance, at one point he puts on the Sorcerer's Apprentice hat from Fantasia and he's like, oh, this is great. And then he gets torn down a whirlpool uh, as a reference to the Sorcerer's Apprentice and how, how all of that went down. So it just seems like there's these really great dynamics with 
the anxiety-riddled Gen Z and late millennial vibes, actual good morals for children, and this nostalgia that is willing to mock itself a little bit. And that only expands more as it shifts from the Mickey Mouse show to the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse show, which technically is from 2020 to the present. One episode that I just want to call out because I I loved it is called Once Upon an Apple. And basically, Mickey sets out in the morning and his goal is to make someone happy. And of course, the first person he runs into is the evil queen from Snow White. And and she just wants to kill Snow White. And, And so he keeps trying to help her. And so he, you know, she... He's annoying her, so she gives him an apple. So he bakes her a pie, and so she eats it, and she's like, wait a minute, what is this? Oh, it's from your apple. And she just dies, like, 50 times in the span of, like, three minutes. There are references to her her actual death in the original Snow White. The vultures show up, various things fall on her, and she falls into. She is possibly immortal, because she is shown to be, like, legitimately dead on several occasions but just keeps popping up before mickey finally discovers what will make her happy he realized like oh you just have low self-esteem like i can fix this and he gets all of his friends to come and just be like look isn't she pretty and then like dresses her in snow white's outfit and puts her on this creepy horse with like the rats following her like the chipmunks and squirrels do in snow white and it's, it's kind of a good throwback to um, The Runaway Brain, where it starts with him playing a video game of, like, the dwarves fighting the evil queen. Because Mickey kills her so many times, entirely unintentionally, only to find that he can redeem her by just telling her that she has value and giving her her own happy ending. And it's just such a good kind of bounce between, like, Mickey's character, the classic Disney films, and the modern ethos. This is not made for the same people that the ones in the 1930s and 40s were. And that's a good thing. A lot of people want them to be exactly the same as they were 100 years ago, and that makes no sense. So I think these shows by being willing to be subversive and change things up and mock themselves are are probably the only thing that could kind of keep Mickey Mouse going strong because it really is built for today's audiences. Again, I absolutely love this show in both its incarnations. And I think, Megan, you really summed up what's great about it, which is that it brings the spirit of those early cartoons back. Uh, so not every single episode has, you know, meta references and cameos from other Disney characters. Some of them are just very simple of like, Mickey's trying to get from point A to point B, or Mickey and Minnie are in Brazil celebrating Carnival, and it's kind of a Three Caballeros throwback, and, you know, doing that in a much more updated and, uh, I would say, more culturally sensitive way than some of those original ideas were. But what I love about it is that it brings that sort of anarchic spirit of 30s cartoons, but again, updates the sensibilities for today. And and it creates this really nice blend of just fun cartoons that, you know, I think anybody from little kids to old adults can just 
enjoy and come at, you know, it, it sort of meets you where you are in terms of the things that you're concerned about and the things that you're getting out of it. And I'm, I'm really excited to watch tomorrow as we record this Steamboat Silly, which is the season the, or the series finale, rather, uh, which is going to involve multiple versions of Mickey from his history because everything is now a multiverse. <laughs> and so Mickey also gets to have his own multiverse short. I'm very excited to watch that tomorrow. Yeah, I think that that's going to be really fun in seeing those ideology clashes of seeing high-strung, anxiety-riddled Mickey trying to deal with chaos demon uh, early Mickey. We shared the um, trailer for that on our Twitter page a few weeks back, and it, it seems like Steamboat Willie Mickey like blows up the town accidentally, <laughs> which seems very accurate to some of these early ones. And as much as I... I'm cynical and know that a lot of it is tied to the company and trying to feed on our nostalgia. I, I have to admit that I'm looking forward to it because I think that it does a good job of honoring and criticizing. And I am very eager to see how they handle that. So if y'all want to see what we think about it, we might put out a special episode or a mini episode at some point talking through that. So just let us know if that's something you'd be interested in listening to. All right. And we say mini episode. It'll still be about Mickey, although we'll probably talk about Minnie in that episode as well. But um, <laughs> Good job. And I've seen some theorizing online that part of the reason why that episode exists is because Disney is going to lose the copyright to specifically Steamboat Willie Mickey next year. So, Megan, I know you did some research on where, on the, the intersection of Mickey and copyright law falls, which is, you know, just as fun of a subject as talking about cartoons. Okay, so you mock it, but uh, I took archival studies classes. This is actually part of why I'm doing this podcast, so I wanted to make sure we covered it. <laughs> I took archival studies tests and classes and one of the things that we talked about is that copyright law in the U.S. is so confusing. If things came out before X year, these rules apply. If they came out between the next 20 years, these rules apply. And if they're the 20 years after that, then there's four possibilities and you just have to, like, spin a wheel and stand on your head and read the horoscopes to see, like, when uh, copyright expires. So it's all wild, and if you ask people why, the legitimate answer in the legal and business world is Mickey Mouse. And I just, I need to share that with you all, partially so that you'll understand the future of Mickey. As we've talked about with a few of the early movies, we'll be doing a Halloween special on Winnie the Pooh Blood and Honey uh, this year. There are plans for various horror movie versions of Pinocchio and Bambi and all of that because they're coming into the public domain. And so the question on everybody's mind is, are we going to get the horror movie Mickey? And I, I refer them back to the 90s. But, you know, if, if we're really playing with the issue, I just want to give kind of a brief synopsis of what Disney has done to the laws, which is both heartwarming and, and really horrifying that a company could change this many things. 
But it all goes back to that idea that we have that Walt does not want to ever lose his products again. When we go back through the history of copyright law, and I'm not going to go super in-depth, but according to the IP law blog, uh, when U.S. copyright first was introduced, copyrights were only allowed to exist for 14 years. Disney and Mickey Mouse are directly responsible for that timeline extending nearly tenfold. At this point, depending on what time you were created, you get about a hundred years of copyright, which is a, a very big uh, change. So when Mickey Mouse first entered the public stage, uh, copyright law was basically set up so that any character would be protected for up to 56 years. That's a really random number, and I'm sure a great law student could tell you all about why that's what it was. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you that it was 56 years at that point which meant that the character would come into the public domain in 1984. Obviously, though, we know that hasn't happened. And it's actually really fascinating because when all of the fighting and changes were happening was during Mickey's absence, where we didn't have Mickey, and it became really questionable. If Disney hasn't done anything with him in 30 years, do they deserve the copyright? Which there's all sorts of Maybe we'll get a lawyer as a uh, special guest at some point to walk us through the particularities. When we get to the point where we have to talk about stock buybacks and hostile shareholder takeovers, that might be the time. <laughs> that's, that's probably a good call. <laughs> so specifically, if we're looking at details, in 1976, Disney poured money into lobbying. So we're not going to get to the 70s for a while on this podcast. As most Disney fans will know, there were kind of like the first or first two golden ages and, and then the Renaissance in the 90s. So we're definitely in that pit period with the company as a whole and with Mickey in particular, where they didn't really know what they were doing. They didn't have too many big successes, but they had money. And so they got all their lawyers together and lobbied the U.S. government to extend the copyright for another 19 years, which would mean that it ended in 2003. Again, we know that didn't happen. 1998. Things get really weird. So the new ruling, as far as I can understand it, is that anything published after 1978 gets the full life of the author plus 70 years after that. And then corporate properties, uh, which is another place where Mickey gets complicated. Is he the property of Walt or of the Walt Disney Corporation? I believe they eventually decided corporation, but it's, it's kind of dicey. Corporations get either 95 years from the year of publication or 120 years from creation, whichever ends first, which gave Mickey until 2023. So whether you are us recording this or you are listening to a brand new uh, episode, it's 2023. So what happens now? <laughs> That's actually really uncertain. And Disney has not openly talked about it. They, they have in a few ways, but not in anything terribly concrete. With no new legislation on the books, it's highly unlikely that they're going to be able to change it in the next year. And it's uncertain if they're really trying to. Technically speaking, 
Mickey Mouse will go into public domain in January of 2024. Kind of. So this is where it gets even more confusing. So again, going back to Winnie the Pooh, uh, Blood and Honey, those of you who were curious about that will know that essentially they could use the character Winnie the Pooh, but they couldn't use iconic Disney elements. So you could have Winnie the Pooh, but you couldn't have Winnie the Pooh in a red shirt. Things like that. And it's going to be a very similar thing with Mickey. So only the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey is going to go into the public domain. So anything introduced after, any design changes, and broadly speaking, the world of Mickey Mouse is still entirely owned by Disney. So what exactly is in public domain is kind of questionable. There's not terribly much that you couldn't argue is supported by a later copyright. Mostly it seems to be the name, but the specifics are pretty much stuck with Disney. The name and the image get even more complicated because they are uh, registered trademarks for Disney and trademarks have no expiration dates. So Disney can control the use of the image and the name theoretically forever which will, again, lead us into the cult territory. Even in 2023, what exactly people have the right to play with and what is firmly owned by Disney is a little bit confusing. But broadly speaking, the idea is just the very early remnants. So the idea of Mickey as a mouse, the specific design from Steamboat Willie, and probably the specific design of that version of the mouse whistling that song are basically all that's going to be really open to everybody. Maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't, but it certainly shows how much power Disney and Mickey Mouse have had that literally all of copyright law is dictated by Walt and the inheritors of his company not wanting to lose this mouse from a hundred years ago. But the big question is going to kind of turn to what about the things after Mickey? As time continues to tick by, those later shorts will start to fall into the public domain, and so will the early movies, which I think is going to be a much, much bigger deal. So already we're seeing, of course, Winnie the Pooh, we've talked about Pinocchio, because those stories are in the public domain, but not the Disney versions. Once the Disney versions go into the public domain, I, I think we could have the Hunger Games with Disney characters and they could probably get away with it. So it's going to be a very interesting next uh, 10 to 15 years where we get to see what happens to Disney when they no longer control the nostalgia of Disney products. So that may not be as fun as some of the shorts we've talked about, but I think that it is so important to understanding Disney as a company, to understanding where we are with Disney and the United States. And I just think it's something that will be really fascinating to watch as we continue to go on. Because at the end of the day, creativity usually wins out. And a figure that was sacred so sacred for 30 years that its own company would not put anything out when it is officially given to the people is going to be a very interesting ride to follow. 
Yeah, I think things are going to get weird, and <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out. I don't know if I have strong feelings at this point on what I think people should do or you know what to expect, but I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. I think that we are a culture right now that is so dominated by remix and imagery, specifically talking things like TikTok, things like memes, that once we start playing with like intellectual property in a way that we can get away with, it's either going to be really, really good or like the downfall of entertainment. And, and I, I say that completely hyperbolically, but this is one of the first big things that is going to be opened up to the public that has not had the ability to do that before that was so carefully guarded by its company. And I think that the question will be, to paraphrase uh, Syndrome from uh, The Incredibles, if nobody is protected by copyright anymore, everything goes. That's a very, very loose paraphrase there. But uh, essentially, once we lose intellectual property rights and copyright laws, I don't know. Will we see the rise of new superheroes or will we see robots pretending to be Mickey Mouse at various restaurants? I don't know, but it'll be fun to watch. Like I said, things are going to get weird and I, I'm, looking, I'm, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. So, so here's my big... Well, I have two questions for you. All right. Number one, if the Bambi horror movie that's on the horizon has a scene of Bambi eating... Steamboat Willie era Mickey. Does that make it better or worse? I mean, it'll certainly make me more sad because I just want, like, I would want Mickey and Bambi to be friends, even if they're teamed up against, like, evil humans. I, I would be down for that. That's fair. I, I, I am aware that deer don't generally eat mice, but I feel like it would be a, a great scene for people who want to, like, to, to really dig it into Disney. So my second question is, in the ideal world, in the happy world, what do you think could be a really cool thing that we get out of free creativity in connection with Mickey Mouse? I think that's a great question, because on the one hand, like I keep thinking about the remix aspect, but there's enough of like fair use and parody in there where I feel like you can kind of get away with a bunch of stuff in that vein. I think it'll be really interesting if some company just comes along and just makes like new 1920s style Mickey shorts. Like I like I kind of just want to see what happens and like how Disney reacts to it. And I almost don't want them to like go crazy and, and do like, you know, all kinds of like horror stuff. You know what I mean? Like I, I really want somebody to come along and just like play it really straight. And just, like, take the elements that are there, maybe add some other public domain characters, like, from that, that era or whatever, and just really just make new cartoons with that version of Mickey Mouse. I think that would actually be the most interesting to see, especially how Disney reacts to. Because I think there's so much stuff, like, you know, no one's going to mistake this Pooh movie or this Bambi movie as, like, a Disney product. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I think it still falls under that sort of, like, parody but we can use the real name because the real name is public domain mm -hmm. but it'll be interesting to see somebody come out with like a mickey mouse cartoon but it's just like 
yeah it's a new mickey mouse cartoon there's you know all the elements that are there it might still be even in black and white but like i'm kind of just curious to see what would happen if somebody did that and like really played it straight i think that there's always going to be kind of the question once a company or a person gets so big i know that this question has been asked with uh figures like jk rowling multiple times have you gotten so big that you could not write your character properly that you no longer understand the character because you are so big and i think that there's as much as i've enjoyed the modern mickey i think that there's an argument that the scrappy kind of energy of early disney doesn't exist at disney anymore it is too big of a company it owns too much and if we could see a company that really has a similar life experience to the early Disney, maybe they really could bring back an element of Mickey that has been gone all these decades. Yeah, I think I think it's a really great point. So this is where we turn it to you guys. Get Mickey Mouse public domain trending or something and tell us what you think could happen when Mickey Mouse comes into the public domain. Like I said, it's a lot more limited than the free-for-all that some of the other public domainizations have been. But I just, I think there's a lot of potential good and a lot of potential bad that will be very interesting to watch these years. Next time on Dream With Mind and Heart, we'll be looking at a handful of shorts from the 1950s that are not about Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and we'll be talking about what influenced them, which ones were successful, and why they faded away. And uh, the Disney company stopped making animated shorts altogether. In the meantime, you can email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at dreammindheart and on Instagram at dreamwithmindandheart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suela.